things are now finished, that the scripture might be accomplished, saith, I thirst. And there was set there a vessel full of vinegar. So they put a sponge full of the vinegar upon hyssop and brought it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now we want to sort of focus in on the expression, it is finished. And when Jesus said it is finished, we can think of two things, and there may be more, of what he may have had in mind. Dying on the cross, he had finished these two things we know. One thing, he had finished the law. The Mosaic law that had been given by God to his own people and had been used as a tutor or a schoolmaster to bring them to Jesus that they might be justified by faith. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And verily I say unto thee, Till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass away, till all things be accomplished. I think it's important to think about his saying all things are going to be accomplished when he fulfilled the law and the prophets. And we think that's what's happening here on the cross. And that's at least one of the things that was finished when he died. Because when we turn to Colossians 2, 14 through 17, having blotted out the bond, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Having blotted out the bond that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he had taken it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Now he says he's blotted it out, he's taken it out of the way, and he's nailed it to the cross. The bond written in ordinances. <coughs> when we turn over to Ephesians 2 and 15, we read there, having abolished in his flesh, that is, when he died on the cross. That's the reference in his flesh. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances that he might create in himself and so forth. So when it spoke about having abolished, taken out of the way and nailed to the cross, the bond that was written in ordinances Paul, the same author in Ephesians 2.15, speaks about it as being the law of commandments written in ordinances. And we know from the context, going back to Colossians 2, and verse 16 and 17, that he was talking about the Mosaical law. Because he begins in verse 16 by saying, Let no man therefore... Now, the therefore is referring back to what he's just said. Here is a conclusion. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink, in respect of a feast day or of a new moon or of a Sabbath day, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ. <clears throat> when it speaks about drink and uh, 
meat. He's talking about the daily sacrifice. And then he identifies the weekly as the Sabbath day, the monthly as the new moon, and the annual feast days as the feast day. <coughs> These were required by God of his people under the Mosaic law. And so here were people, perhaps, who were saying, well, you're not observing these sacrifices. Paul says, let no man therefore judge you in these things, because that law is out of the way. It's been done away with. And so when Jesus died on the cross and he said, it is finished, he had fulfilled that law. And we notice, too, when he made the statement in Matthew 5, 17, till... Uh, think not that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. The antithesis of destroy was not to perpetuate, but fulfill. And Jesus did fulfill and accomplished all things about the law that had been written of him in that law and among the prophets. So that's one of the things that perhaps he had in mind, and I think he did, when he says, it is finished, the Mosaic law. Secondly, it would be the work that he came to accomplish. Jesus said in John 4, 34, My need is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Now that was, that was all of his life. The disciples had gone into Sychar to get some food. It was time to eat. They brought it back. He didn't eat. He wasn't hungry. He said, well, my meat is spiritual. It is to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. And that's what he, he did in his lifetime. He accomplished the will of the Lord. Also, <clears throat> when he's praying in John 17 and 4, we refer to this prayer this morning. He said to the Father, I have glorified thee on the earth, having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. In anticipating of dying the next day on the cross, he said, I've already done that. It was that certain. And so in his prayer to the Father, who knew the ending as from the beginning, he said, I've glorified thee on having accomplished the work which thou hast given me to do. And so that certainly was a part of what was finished when he spoke. We think about his perfect life. That was finished. It had to be perfect because he's God. It had to be perfect to offer up an atonement that God would accept. An atonement from something less than perfect would not be acceptable to God. It had to be perfect because he was leaving an example. Didn't Peter tell us that we should follow in the steps of Jesus? 1 Peter 2. And so when he died on the cross... He had left a perfect example of how his disciples should live because he had lived that way. And certainly the work that he accomplished was his death on the cross, dying for our sins, bearing our sins. Hebrews 2 and 9 tells us that it was by the grace of God that Christ tasted of death for every man. He experienced death to make the redemption that was possible through that death available to all men. Now all men are not interested. But it's been done. And it was for all men. 
1 Timothy 1 and 15, faithful is the saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to do what? Paul said to save sinners. And he goes on to add of whom I am the greatest. He recognized the need of Jesus coming and that he had accomplished that work. However, having seen that he accomplished and fulfilled the law, took it out of the way, that he accomplished a perfect life, dying for our sins, the work of Jesus has not all been accomplished. Jesus is still carrying on his work. I want us to think about the unfinished work of Jesus. When we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there we read the Gospels recording all that Jesus began. Notice that word. All that Jesus began to do and to teach. But when we get to the book of Acts and to the epistles, we read about the unfinished work of Jesus. And that's what I'd like for us to notice tonight. First, when we turn over to Matthew 28, well, verse 20, but let's start with verse 18. Jesus said, after his resurrection, before his ascension back to heaven, all authority hath been given unto me in heaven and upon earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now notice teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Your version may say unto the end of the ages. But Jesus promised there to be with his disciples always, and that is a part of the Lord's unfinished work. We've not come to the end of the world. We've not come to the end of the ages. We need his presence. And he's promised to be with us always. That's a part of his unfinished work. What do we think moved the apostles and the early disciples to carry that great commission to all the nations? To suffer all of the ordeal and the persecution and the trials that came their way in trying to accomplish the Lord's will here upon this earth. Even unto death. Well, I can see a part of the answer was the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very last verse in Mark, Mark 16 and verse 20 says that they went forth, the disciples, and preached everywhere the Lord working with them and confirming the word with the signs which followed. Here were these apostles. Taking the word to this nation and to that nation. Converting people to Jesus Christ. And the Lord was with them wherever they went. They didn't go in groups. The twelve went here and the twelve here. They, they scattered. But wherever they and other disciples and those that converted went. With the gospel. Living the Christian life. The Lord was right at their side. And that gave them the strength to endure and to carry out the work because they wanted to be among the overcomers. They wanted to be on the side that was to be victorious, even though they were suffering in this life. The Lord was there to help them. And when you and I go out, or wherever we are, He has promised to be with us. The condition, of course, is that we follow Him. And He'll 
be with us. <clears throat> we mentioned the apostles, some of the early disciples, one of whom was Polycarp. Polycarp was a man who died at the stake in 155 B.C. It said that he was a bishop in the church at Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Asia, that he had contact with the Apostle John and other witnesses. They're not identified, but it's thought that he knew John the Apostle. And they appealed to him when they were having a pagan festival to recant, to give up Jesus Christ, to denounce him, or else they were going to burn him at the stake. And Polycarp reportedly responded, Eighty and six years have I served my Lord, and he's never done me any harm. So why should I renounce him now? And so he was burned at the stake. Immediately his spirit left his soul, according to the, uh, left his body according to the scriptures, and went to be with the Lord. But the Lord was with him. And that gave him the strength to endure the suffering of that kind of death. He wouldn't give up. The Lord was with him. We have also examples where the Lord was with the saints, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament. When we turn over to Acts, Stephen is preaching, Acts 7, giving us a history of the children of Israel. And it refers to, uh, to Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, the one whose brothers hated him, envious of him, jealous, sold him to the Ishmaelites, and he was carried down into Egypt. But notice what Stephen had to say about Joseph. And the patriarchs moved with jealousy against Joseph, their own brother, sold him into Egypt, and God was with him, and delivered him out of all his afflictions, and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house, Acts 7, 9, and 10. Also, we have the example of the Lord being with Paul. In fact, we've got a few examples of that. When he was in Corinth, Acts 18, 9, and 10, we read, And the Lord said unto Paul in the night by a vision, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace, for I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to harm thee. When he was in Jerusalem, Acts 23 and 11, the Lord appeared to him. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, for as thou hast testified concerning me at Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. So, here we have the Lord's appearing, being at the side of Strengthening these disciples and apostles and all that they had to endure. I can imagine the saints of the Old and New Testaments must have carried in their life, in their hearts, David's Psalm, the 23rd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. 
He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He guideth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff comfort me. And so forth. I will fear no evil. Because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. And so here we have the Lord promising. And carrying out his promise. To be with his disciples, his children. We were holding a gospel meeting in Pontotoc, Oklahoma, some years ago. And there were two sisters, sisters in the flesh and sisters in Christ, who, who, who visited the gospel meeting. And they lived several miles away in Bromide, for those that know Oklahoma. Their husbands worked in a mine there. And they weren't near any congregation. I mean, it was miles away. I don't know how far. But they met together every Lord's Day. Once, or, once in a while, maybe some other lady would meet with them, but those two carried on the worship service. And they asked Laverne and me if we'd come over that Sunday afternoon that we were there in Pontotoc, and we did. And they met in a little building. I can't remember if it was a school building or where, but we had a service together, just the four of us, those two sisters, Laverne and myself. And we felt that the Lord had kept his promise with us just like he had with every other assembly. And will ever and always be present when we meet or whether we're by ourselves. I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. Another part of the Lord's unfinished work has to do with adding the same to his church. When we turn over to Acts 2, verse 41 and 47, we read, well, in verse 41, we, we see that uh, for as many as received his word, that's Peter's word, were baptized. And there were added unto them in that day about 3,000 souls. Added. Verse 47, the last verse says, And the Lord added daily to the church, such as were being saved. Well, who were these that the Lord added to his church? Well, we just have to back up in Acts 2, as far as verse 36. Peter's been preaching. It convinced a lot of people, as we read in this, starting with verse 36. And let all the household of Israel be, uh, of Israel be assured that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom he persecuted or crucified. And when they heard this, that accusation, as well as what Peter had been saying, the proofs that had been given, the evidence he had been pointing to, that Jesus they had crucified was actually the Son of God, when they heard that, they were pricking their hearts, and they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter answered, said, Repent ye, and be baptized. Every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is to you and your children, and to as many as are, as are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. And then, with many other words, he testified unto them, saying, Save yourselves from this unpleasant.
toward or this crooked generation. Respond to the gospel. Respond to the Lord. Save yourselves from the doom and the guilt of this generation. And he just told them what they needed to do to be saved. So who were those that the Lord added to the church? Were those who had believed that Jesus was the Lord in Christ? That's what he said in verse 36. Believe confidently that God had made him both Lord and Christ. They had repented of their sins. They had been baptized, immersed for the remission of their sins, and they're the ones that were added because they're the ones who were saved. The Lord does the saving. The Lord does the adding. And he'll do the same today. For anybody who believes that Jesus is Christ and is willing to surrender his life in obedience to the first principles of the gospel, he has the Lord's promise. He'll save him. He'll add him to his family. Now, let me give three good reasons why we don't encourage people to join the church. One such reason is that the church is God's family. And we're born in that. John 3 and 5, except when he's born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Another reason is that God does the saving. And he does the adding. The third reason is, is because the role is not kept in office. We don't have a secretary keeping a role, people who join. But the record is kept in heaven. When we turn to Luke, Chapter 19 and verse 20. Or is it 17 and verse 20? It's 10 and verse 20. Okay, in Luke 10 and verse 20. Jesus had sent out the 70, preaching the gospel, giving them the power to perform signs, to confirm their work. And they came back rejoicing. And they mentioned specifically that the unclean spirits had been in subjection to them. And God said, Jesus said in verse 20, Rejoice not that the spirits are in subjection to thee or in subject to thee, but rejoice because thy names are recorded in heaven. When a person is saved by the Lord and added to the church, his name is recorded and inscribed in heaven as among the saved. Well, let's move on to something else among the unfinished work of Jesus. And that is being our faithful and merciful high priest. Now, there are three things that come to mind when we think about Jesus being a high priest. A lot of different religions have priests. God had a priesthood for his people during the Old Testament days, Aaron being the first high priest. But the priesthood was changed, Hebrews 7 and 12. And Jesus Christ is our high priest now. Three functions that the high priest carries on. One is making an offering for sins. The Old Testament required daily offerings and weekly and all of these other offerings, but they never could take away sin. But Jesus once for all offered his blood offered himself, and that was accepted by God. He made an offering for the forgiveness of our sins. In Hebrews 1, verse 3, when he had made purifications of sins, 
he sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus went back and we had this picture of him making an offering of himself that was accepted to take away the sins of those committed before the cross and all that will be committed after the, sin, uh, after the cross. So one function of the high priest was to offer a sacrifice and for Christ a sacrifice, uh, an offering that was acceptable for all sins. You notice that he sat down. When we turn over to Hebrews 10, there is a contrast that's made between the priest under the old covenant and Jesus Christ as our high priest. Let me read, what did I say, chapter 10. And I want to read verses uh, 11 and 12. And every priest indeed standeth day by day. Now, he refers to these Old Testament priests as standing. Then he's going to talk about Jesus sitting. And I think there is a significance there. And every priest indeed standeth day by day. We go on day by day. Ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices. The which can never take away sins. Now in contrast, verse 12, but he, Christ, when he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. The Old Testament priest just could not get it done because the blood of those animals wasn't efficacious. But Jesus' blood was. They had to keep on standing and offering, oftentimes, day by day, the same sacrifice. Jesus just had to do it once. And he sat down. That part of his work as a high priest was completed. He doesn't keep offering himself, as uh, the Catholic Mass suggests. He just had to do it one time. And that was sufficient. And so one role of the high priest, of Jesus, was to make an offering. And that was to make propitiation for our sins. In Hebrews 2 and verse 17. Wherefore it behooved him. That it was, it was necessary for Jesus. In all things to be made like unto his brethren. That he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. In things pertaining to God. Notice. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Well, propitiate, expiate. These are words that uh, are used depending on your version of the Bible in First John 2 and 2. I like the word propitiate because it means not only to receive atonement for one's sins, but it is to appease the wrath of God. People don't like to think about God being a wrathful God, so they substitute the word expiate. But my version has propitiate. And it also teaches about the wrath of God. And by Jesus as a high priest offering himself, he offered a propitiation. It appeased God's wrath against those who were sinners, who came and received forgiveness because of their, his atoning sacrifice. John Bunyan, in his Pilgrim's Progress, gives us a picture. 
And it's a picture of relief from guilt that he presents in this allegory called Pilgrim's Progress. And Bunyan shows Christian, the main character in this story, kneeling at the cross, his burden of guilt falls off and rolls into the empty tomb, never to be seen again. Well, is that a true biblical picture? Certainly it is because of Calvary. And the atoning sacrifice made there that people who believe it and accept it will come to the Lord for that forgiveness. And all of his past sins or all of her past sins are rolled away, never to be remembered and brought against them again. But we're not perfect. And though we're to be growing in his image, we still are not perfect. And 1 John 1 and 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanseth us from all sins. And it keeps on cleansing us from all sins. These sins that we keep on committing, we have the assurance that Jesus Christ as our high priest having offered a sacrifice through his blood, will keep on cleansing us of our sins. Well, there's another idea in his role as a high priest, and that is being a man. He was able to, and is able, to sympathize, and to succor, and to comfort mankind who come to him for forgiveness. We know he, be <clears throat> excuse me, he became a man. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and so forth. And we just read from Hebrews 2 and 17 that he became a share in the flesh and blood of his brethren. He became like them in all things. Becoming a man, he was tempted. He suffered as a man, he was tempted as a man, and he's able to succor then us folks. When we go through trials, and when we're tempted, and when we need help, that's a part of being a high priest. It's sympathizing with us, and that's the point that uh, is made there. <clears throat> when we turn to Hebrews 4, Verse 14, 15, and 16. It says that we have such a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, even Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we have not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. That's what we're talking about. One who can be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. One who has been tempted in all points like as we yet without sin. Let us therefore, because we have such a high priest, draw nigh with confidence under the throne of grace to find mercy and to receive grace in time of need. Because we have a high priest who has suffered as a man and he knows what it is to suffer. He knows what it is to be tempted like we're tempted all the time. Tempted like us we are. To come to our aid and to help us. The third role of the high priest that we find in Jesus Christ is that he's able to approach God for us. 
and we've already alluded to this point, providing for our forgiveness, being our advocate before the, the paraclete, the one who stands between God and man, being 100% God, he has a relationship with God. Being 100% man, he has a relationship with man. He's the only one who would be the, the exact perfect go-between God and man. And so Hebrews 9 tells us that he stands before the presence of God on our behalf as a man, sympathizing with us. Well, maybe we have to go on to one more point. We got, uh, yeah, we got a minute or two. And that is, uh, his unfinished work also includes judging. The great day of the judgment is yet to come. Jesus made the statement in John 5 and 22, I believe it's 20, yeah. He says, the Father hath given unto me all judgment. He said, The Father judges no man, but hath given unto me all judgment, or hath given unto the Son of Man all judgment. And this judgment is going to be a universal judgment. That's why Paul, in preaching in Athens, said, You, you men and you women need to repent. He says, The times of ignorance God hath overlooked, but now. He commandeth men that they all everywhere repent inasmuch as he hath appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he hath ordained whereof he hath given assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead. God raised Jesus from the Christ and said this is your guarantee. There's going to be a day of judgment. It's going to be universal and Jesus Christ is going to be that judge. And so we need to repent. We need to get ready. And the standard of that judgment is going to be his word. We know from John 12 and 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings hath one that judgeth him the word that I spake. The same shall judge him when? In the last day. That's when this universal judgment is going to take place. That's when everybody's going to be brought before the judge and be separated. The righteous will receive, be received into glory and the unrighteous, the wicked, shall be condemned to eternal doom in hell. The last verse of Matthew 25, verse 46 says, And these, the wicked, shall go away into everlasting or eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life or everlasting life. And it's at the judgment this is going to take place. His unfinished work includes judging you and me and everybody else. His unfinished work, that's going to be the last part of his work, is it not? That's unfinished. Judging everybody. The most frightening fact we have to face is found in Romans 14 and 12. The most frightening fact that you and I have to face. For each of us 
shall give an account unto God, shall give an account of himself unto God. That's when we're going to stand single file in line. Can't lean on anybody else but Jesus. In a conversation, it was said that many people are lulled into thinking. They're lulled into thinking that when they die, they're going to heaven. They forget the judgment and their unforgiven sins, and they do not have a Savior. Now that describes so many people in the world. They just take for granted they're going to go to heaven. They're lulled into thinking that, but they're forgetting something. The judgment, their unforgiven sins, and they don't have a Savior. The unfinished work of Christ. Jesus died for your sins. And he pleads for you to come to him to let him save you. He pleads for you to come and obey his gospel. And he will add you to his church. And he'll always be with you. Always be at your side. And when you sin as one of his children, you can go to him as a high priest for forgiveness of your sins. The plea is... Live for Jesus now. And then you can live with him forever. If you're subject to the gospel invitation, would you come as together we stand and sing?